recorded live from Hong Kong and Toronto. Let's go. This is the PR and Law podcast. The PR and Law podcast. Turn it up. Turn it up. With your hosts, Cam McMurchie and you and Christy. Welcome to episode number 13 of the PR and Law podcast. I'm your host Cam McMurchie alongside you and Christy. Hello, Cameron. Ewan is an employment lawyer and partner at Duntroon LLP in Toronto, Canada, and you can find his firm online at duntroonllp.law. I'm a PR guy based in Hong Kong and publisher of the Digital Bits PR and Communications newsletter, and that is at digitalbitspr.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please share it with a friend. You can follow us on social media as well. We're on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and our account is PR Law Podcast across uh, all those four social networks. Uh, And we are also on YouTube. So please subscribe to us on there as well. That would be great. And if you would like to help us out, that would mean a lot too. You can support us on Patreon and you can get to that page through the uh, PR and Law website, which is at prlawpodcast.com and you can click support the show. And lastly, we're happy to take your questions, uh, post them on social media with the hashtag PRLawPod. We will get them and then we will answer them in an upcoming show. We have so much going on today, Ewan. What's happening with you uh, back in Canada? Well, we, we just had our, our nation's birthday on July 1st. Cameron. Right. Happy belated I, I Canada Day. Celebrated. Yeah. Well, it's right, uh, right. Yeah. It was a holiday here, too, because it's also the Hong Kong Establishment Day. So we uh, we share that anniversary. Oh, OK. So we got to celebrate Hong Kong and Canada's establishment all on the same day. OK, that's good. Was, and, uh, you know, very happy July 4th mm-hmm. long weekend to our uh, our friends in the States as well. For sure. Was anything going on on Canada Day there in light of all the social distancing and stuff like that? I know the weather in Vancouver was awful on Canada Day. It was cold. I think it was the the coldest Canada Day in 60 years in Vancouver. So nothing was happening. Um, but how was it out where you are? Well, yeah, well, we didn't we didn't suffer from that problem. It was hot and sunny and beautiful here. Um, but, you know, still pretty much social distance distancing. All of the Canada Day festivities were postponed you know there's still people out and about but in a, in a much more limited fashion i know we kind of stuck around the house and just had some drinks in the backyard and on the front front porch which was really really nice and and, and took it easy that was about it yeah that sounds like a pretty good candidate to me I want to uh, look at the COVID numbers. Uh, I, again, I, we talk about this every week. I mean, Canada seems to be doing okay. The world actually is just, uh, seems to be on the march out of this thing. Uh, so just the quick numbers for you. 11.2 million cases worldwide. Uh, that's cumulative with uh, 530,000 deaths. Way too many, obviously. Uh, but the U.S. is the hotspot. It's still bad there. And now some governors are starting to close uh, states again. So uh, the U.S. is up to 2.9 million cases overall and 132 thousand deaths just in the u.s uh canada 105,000 cases uh 8,674 deaths uh you had a pretty good week overall from from the numbers that i looked at and um in hong kong we had uh two locally transmitted cases today sunday and that actually breaks a three-week streak of no locally transmitted cases so that was a that was a big deal in total we had eight uh new new cases today uh the others were were flown in from other parts of the world and uh we are are still at seven deaths so that that's that's good news and it it does sound like uh canada's getting getting much better as well things are on the up and up yeah well we're we're getting some good press from our friends to the and neighbors to the south there was a an interesting cnn 
report that was doing the rounds. And this followed the press conference from the White House on Friday, I believe, where they, in so many words, said, we we give up. Um, we're just going to have to learn to live with with COVID. That was effectively the the new strategy going forward. We're all going to have to learn to live with this. And there was one uh, a CNN report that was kind of interesting that was juxtaposing the the American approach with the Canadian approach, and how obviously Canada's remained closed and shut down and social distancing and and masks. You know, not to the degree that we would have liked, but at least more so than what we've seen to our uh, to our neighbors in the south. And, uh, you know, again, can we, you know, we, we do, we talk about this every week, but this new strategy of, we have to learn to live with it. I can understand why a lot of Americans are really, really frustrated with this quote unquote new approach. Well, I actually think we have to, um, live with it is a good way to look at it, but probably not the way the U S is doing it, because I do think that there's going to be this threat for a long time. I mean, it's going to be a while before this is completely extinct, if ever, meaning we're going to have to be aware all the time that it's a threat that it could, that we could become infected. So I, I like that style of thinking, but the way the U S is going about it, which is kind of to give up and just kind of. I don't know, resign themselves to everybody's going to be infected at some point is, is, is very, very dangerous. Um, and you know, when, when this started, I thought, okay, I'm, I'm wearing a mask every day. This is kind of weird at first. And I thought, you know, when this is over, I'll go back to no mask, but I, you know, we haven't gone back to normal to that degree. I mean, masks are still worn every day by everybody. And it doesn't look like there's an end in sight because, there's always going to be some cases somewhere. Um, so, so this is, this is sort of our way of living with it, which is very different to sort of the U S way of living with it. Yeah. I think that's a good point, right? It's, it's, it's a new normal and it's a normal. It's going to be around for, for a long, long time. And, you know, maybe that's even just the best place to, to leave it. I know we've got a lot of stuff to get to today. I'm very interested to get your take. I know there's a lot of stuff going on in Hong Kong. So um, why don't, why don't we move on to that? Sure. Yeah. This was kind of surreal to live through, in fact, because, I mean, you and you're familiar with the city. Uh, you know, on Tuesday of this week, which was June 30th, we were a uh, very free liberal city where, uh, you know, uh, we had free speech and the free press and everything else, just like you'd find uh, in, in Western democracies. But the next day, uh, a lot of that was taken away uh, very quickly. So very late at night on Tuesday, uh, Beijing un- un- unveiled its national security law. The text had not been released to anybody before uh, Tuesday night. So we had a couple of hours notice before it went into effect. And uh, it's bad. It's very bad. Um, and I, I mean, the one thing I wanted to share with listeners is just, I mean, to a lot of people, Hong Kong's far away. They don't really know where it is or what's happening there. And, you know, why this is consequential, I think, is just the, the business side of things. So, I mean, Hong Kong's a free customs port. So there's no tariffs on importing any goods here, which is which is a big deal for trade. You know, it's a founding member of the WTO. Uh, you know, the interesting thing, Hong Kong has 442 billion U.S. dollars in reserves. And when you think about that, that's for a city, just just the city. And that's eighth globally, if you're looking even at countries. So, I mean, the reserves in Hong Kong alone are bigger than, you know, South Korea or Brazil or Germany, you know, places like that. Um, and, it's, and it's been a very free market for a long time, and it's got one of the most important stock markets in the world as well. So, I mean, all of this is why we're losing something here, at least in the, in the international sense. Um, and it's also been popular just because it's in Asia. It's, it's very efficient. English is an official language here, and we use British common law. So this is a, you know, a key market for uh, international dispute resolution and, and, and things like that. 
you know, with this new law coming in, uh, it's it's really sort of attacked uh, a lot of different areas. It's sweeping and it's quite scary. And I want to turn uh, right now just for an update uh, from CNBC. And this is a report that was filed on, on, on Wednesday, July 1st, which is a day normally there are protests here uh, against China on that day. Uh, but here's the report from CNBC. Following a developing story out of Hong Kong, police launching a big crackdown as a new security law imposed by China goes into effect. Eunice Yoon is there and has the details. U.S. businesses are reassessing their exposure to Hong Kong after China imposes new national security law on the city. Thousands of protesters defied a police ban on the July 1st anniversary of the Hong Kong handover. Police arrested more than 300 people. Beijing critics believe the law is meant to quash dissent. It covers nonviolent as well as violent activities, threatens life in prison, and suggests tough cases be extradited to mainland China. Most surprising, the law applies to anyone, anywhere, including people who don't live in Hong Kong. Chinese officials, though, say Beijing exercised restraint with this law since it's not retroactive. Separately, China ordered four American news organizations, AP, NPR, UPI, and CBS News, to submit detailed information about their China-based operations to the government by next Tuesday, the latest twist in the U.S.-China dispute. So, Ewan, the the most concerning parts of this is, uh, you know, there's four offenses that are covered by uh, by this law: uh, secession, subversion, terrorism, and collusion with foreign forces. But the language is so broad, you know, if anyone participates or plans or implements acts of secession, or participate plan plan, uh, plan subversion of the state. Uh, you know, anything that's even related to these things, including speech, which is a contradiction of the Constitution here. Uh, but this will take precedence over that. And we've seen as soon as the uh, the law was enacted, uh, the, the pan-democracy groups here disbanded. Uh, some of the democracy activists left Hong Kong. Uh, and we're already seeing books coming out of libraries. Uh, we're seeing signs that were in restaurants, sort of anti-China signs being taken down. Uh, it's uh, it's ruling by fear, and it's been very effective. I think um, you know Beijing has to look at this very happy from their point of view. Yeah, I mean it, the, Nathan Vanderclip, who I, I I know you know Cam, and we've um, we've talked about his his reporting in the past. He had a an article in the Globe and Mail. It was posted over the weekend, and he had some some choice choice quotes that I kind of wanted to to sort of speak to because they're all really authoritative sources. So, you know, David Law, who is the Sir YK PAL chair of public law at the University of Hong Kong, you know, this was his quote. He said, I'm hard pressed to think of a national security law anywhere in the modern world with broader reach, either substantive or territorial. Uh, Alex Wang, a scholar of Chinese law at UCLA said, Quote, it is wrong to say it is just like security laws elsewhere, the institutions to balance national security concerns against individual rights are simply not there. And even Kent Roach, who's a you know a legal scholar here at the University of Toronto, that it, it could criminalize much peaceful international advocacy. You know, and I think those those three quotes really sum up your point, which is the reach of this law is so remarkably broad. Um, I mean, it, it arguably means that the U.S. Congress, the European Parliament, United Nations, I mean, they could all be guilty under this law, given condemnation of, uh, of, of China and the actual law itself. It's really, really, really disconcerting. Um, as you may have seen, Canada has already 
taken some steps following the law. So it's, it's suspended its extradition treaty with Hong Kong. So it will no longer allow people to be extradited to HK, to Hong Kong. Um, it's going to treat any sensitive goods being exported to Hong Kong as if they're being sent to mainland China. And it's no longer going to, you know, permit the export of any sensitive military items. You know, it, it's, it's concerning. I mean, even, even our, our government even issued a travel advisory. I mean, and this for me is, as you know, Cam, as somebody who's been there many, many times and um, loves, loves Hong Kong, you know, the quote may be at an increased risk of arbitrary detention on national security grounds and possible extradition to mainland China. Um, exercise a high degree of caution. I, 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 that, that just seems so incredibly yeah, it's chilling. outrageous to me as somebody who's been there so many times, but, um, you know, I guess, I guess this is, this is the new normal. Yeah. And, you know, I don't see it ever going back either uh, at this point. Um, I mean, a couple other things just before we wrap up on this subject. Um, the Chinese government is also setting up a national security office in Hong Kong. So it's going to have, uh, you know, uh, investigators and, and uh, people like that. But they, but they will not uh, be under Hong Kong law. So it will operate outside of the Hong Kong legal system, which is also quite, quite concerning. And then another point is, um, you know, the government now has the power to monitor telecommunications, confiscate property, restrict travel, things like that, uh, without needing to go to a judge to get uh, to get an okay. So, um, I mean, the more that comes out about this, the more, I mean, I've read, uh, um, you know, large parts of it. It really is, I mean, it's, it's so much worse than I think what people's worst case scenario was. When we look back here, like in, in 2012, we had people protest, uh, you know, for months over a national secure, uh, national education that China wanted to introduce here. Well, this law enacts that. Now we will have national education. You know, people were, were, were protesting against the extradition law last year. This is much worse. This makes it much easier to extradite people to the mainland. Um, you know, the law that was introduced last year would have been much better than this. So, and, and this is the way China operates. It does this inside China. And I've said this before to you. They want people to feel like it's helpless. So don't bother. Don't even bother trying to stand up because you'll get nowhere. Uh, and that's why there's so many people in mainland China. And I've talked to you about this when I say, like, well, are you worried about this? Or don't you want to, you know, you know, improve recycling? Uh, or don't you want to improve safety in your city or whatever it might be? And it's met with a, yeah, but there's nothing we can do. And I think uh, China wants to have Hong Kong people say the same thing. Nothing we can do. Just accept it. They're the boss. Let's just carry on with other things. And um, that is extremely sad to me. But it looks like that's what's going to happen. And I think um, Beijing, I think also Beijing is stepping in with uh, COVID and with the unrest in the United States and with Donald Trump and with Black Lives Matter, all of that stuff. China is just much more emboldened now. And it's not concerned uh, what, what, what outsiders think of it. Uh, it's going to take action. And they, they're, they're strong enough to do so. You know, I was curious to get your take, Cam, on, um, you know, I understand that there's been some some talk about the the UK announcing that, you know, up to I think it was two point six million was the number Hong Kong residents will be able to move there for up to five years and ultimately seek citizenship. Uh, I understand Australia has sort of intimated that it, it might follow suit. Um, you know, what do you sort of, what are your thoughts on those, those initiatives? 
You know, Britain was criticized heavily in 97 at the time of the handover for not giving Hong Kongers right of abode in the UK. And that was actually a big issue then. So uh, Britain gave Hong Kongers the BNO passports. They were eligible for that so they could travel with sort of British consular assistance, but they could not live there. Uh, and they've kind of made made up on, the, on, on that with this offer. It looks like, yeah, up to 3 million Hong Kong people will be eligible for that. And it looks like they can go there, uh, yeah, and live for five years, at which point they can they can apply for citizenship. The interesting part, I think, is I saw a quote from, I think it was an American official who said, you know, because of Britain's historical involvement in Hong Kong, this is something that's their responsibility. However, for Hong Kongers born after 97, for the young people, other countries should step in to help. And so Canada, New Zealand, Australia, and the US are all at various stages of formulating plans to to welcome Hong Kong people in. Uh, nothing's been set in stone yet, uh, but, but the five of them, the five eyes have had these meetings already uh, and it's been reported on. So I think we're going to hear more about this uh, as we move along. Continue the debate with us on social media. Join us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at PR Law Podcast. All one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Send us your questions now by email to askusatprlawpodcast.com. That's all one word, askusatprlawpodcast.com. Or on social media with the hashtag PRLawPod. That's hashtag P-R-L-A-W-P-O-D. All right. Well, Cam, you know, this week I wanted to talk a little bit about employees going back to work. Um, you know, we've had we've had a lot of talk about people being off work and and, uh, you know, the markets remaining closed, employers shops remaining closed. Well, as things start to to reopen, I've been getting a lot of questions about, you know, what do I have to do? What do I not have to do from from employers and and employees? So look, I mean, the basic duty of the employer is if you're going to reopen your business, you have to make sure that you're providing a safe work environment for your employees, right? seems pretty straightforward. That includes things like, you know, PPE if you need it. So we've got to make sure that surfaces are being cleaned if it's an office space, that you have masks readily available, uh, hand sanitizer, that you're practicing social distancing. These are all ideal policies that employers should be should be implement implementing in their work environment, particularly in an indoor office setting for for very obvious reasons to ensure that their employees are safe and to encourage them and motivate them to come back to a safe working environment. Now, can employees refuse to go back? Well, again, you know, I get this question a lot and it depends a great deal in terms of the jurisdiction that you're working in. But generally speaking, if your employer asks you to come back to work, and they can demonstrate that they're providing a safe working environment for you to go back to, then yes, yeah, an employee, you're effectively obliged to, you know, to get up, finally get out of your house and return to your, to your place of business. Okay. When I, when I hear about this, like anytime there's a situation like, not like, well, I mean like COVID, even though there's not, not many pandemics like this, but is to compare our current sort of exceptional state with what we would do under normal circumstances. So even if there was no pandemic, obviously the employee, the employer has to make sure that the, the workplace is safe for the employee. And even in times of non-pandemics, uh, the employee could refuse to go in, correct? 
Well, you're absolutely right. An employer always has an obligation to maintain a safe working environment. Um, there, I mean, there's no, there's no doubt about that. Now, can an employee refuse to go in under sort of quote unquote normal circumstances? Well, again, it depends on what those circumstances are. Um, you know, if, if there's a disability at play, for example, uh, a particular illness that precludes that employee from returning to the work environment such that they require some form of special accommodation, then, then yeah, then, you know, an employer has a, has a duty to accommodate up to the point of undue hardship. That's, that's the test in Ontario. There are similar tests at play in most provinces and similar tests in, in a number of jurisdictions in the United States. Um, you have to you have to be able to demonstrate if you're that employee that you're not going to be able to go back to work, that it is the result of some recognizable disability. And when I say recognizable in an Ontario context, what that means is something under the Ontario Human Rights Code. So a protected ground of discrimination. So, you know, if you legitimately are suffering from from a disability uh, you can't be forced back to work. Your employer has to accommodate you. Your employer mm-hmm. can't discriminate against you and force you back to work on, on that basis. So what does reasonable accommodation look like, which is always the next mm-hmm. question? Well, again, that sort of depends on what accommodation the employee requires and what sort of working environment they're, they're in. Right. Okay. So, I mean, it sounds to me like, and we've talked about this, Ewan, in and in the employer's point of view, that even if um, they can use COVID as an excuse to lay people off when maybe they couldn't have before, that there were people on staff that maybe they wanted to let go or they weren't too fond of, and this gives them the cover to let them go. It sounds like, and I know that many of the, the employees have legitimate concerns, I, I have no doubt about that, but it also seems to open the door a little bit to employees who want to take advantage of the situation, because it's also reasonable to say, you know what, this is extreme, we don't know a lot about COVID-19, we are, you know, even medically, we don't know how it behaves. Uh, or what the long-term implications are. And so I, I don't feel safe going back into a workplace where, I don't know, people are working too close together or something like that. Well, look, all of this has to be within reason. And you're right. When you're talking about something like COVID, it is, it is sort of difficult to, to address the minutia, right? But generally speaking, it's not sufficient for an employee to say, well, hey, you know what? I just don't feel comfortable coming back into the workplace. Again, if the employer can demonstrate that the work environment is in fact safe, that they are providing PPE, that they are sanitizing, cleaning on a regular basis, that they are enforcing social distancing practices. And, you know, effectively what I would advise the employer to do is put that in writing, demonstrate to the employee in writing that this is what you've done. And at that point, you know, the onus then shifts to the employee to demonstrate that they require some special accommodation above and beyond simply, I don't feel comfortable. I mean, that's not going to be, that's not going right. to be sufficient. That, that, that's sort of that point. But your other point, Cam, about, you know, well, employers are using this as an excuse to get rid of employees. Again, you know, in, in most jurisdictions, this doesn't permit the employer to effectively fire the employee. Again, if they fire the employee, at least in most jurisdictions in Canada, anyway, most provinces in Canada, that employee is entitled to reasonable notice of the termination of their employment. Um, you know, termination, pay, severance, these sorts of things. What it does permit them to do, however, is to temporarily lay the employee off to say that, you know, for as long as this is an issue for us, um, we're going to temporarily lay you off. And that's been a very controversial practice 
um, for a number of reasons, because in, in most circumstances, this would typically constitute what's called a constructive dismissal, where your employer has effectively fundamentally altered the terms of your employment relationship by laying you off, um, which unless there's sort of clear language in their employment agreement, they typically don't have the right to do. But given the sort of extraordinary circumstances, some of those some of those rules have been relaxed. And it, even, even this is somewhat up for grabs. There are some employment lawyers who seem to think that no, even given current circumstances, then employees may still have a claim for constructive dismissal. I sort of question the legitimacy of that. But Again, different jurisdictions deal with this differently, but it's not enough, Cam, for an employee to just say, well, you know what? I just don't feel safe. Um, yeah, I get unless that. Unless they have some very, very, yeah, yeah they I guess have a legitimate basis, right? Yeah, I guess the hard part here is I don't think there's a, or maybe there is, like a government list of for your employees. And in order to stay safe from COVID, you need to provide this, 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 and this. And ensure, you know, I, because then it would be very clear for a, a company to be in compliance with that. Whereas, you know, if you have a company that does provide hand sanitizer and takes your temperature when you come in and gives you a free mask and so on and so forth, but you're still sitting close side by side with many other people. And that person says, I don't feel comfortable because there's no social distancing. I mean, the employer can then go back and go like, look, look at all the steps we've taken to help you, but we can't do this one. I mean, in that case, what happens there? Like, I imagine a lot of them would sort of end up in a situation like this. Yeah, I mean, and well, different industries are dealing with this differently. And in, and again, in, in many provinces, some of the states in the U.S., there is sort of protocols that have been introduced. You know, for example, restaurants have recently opened and bars in a limited capacity here in Toronto and the city of Toronto issued a protocol for businesses in terms of these are the checks and balances. These are the, what you have to enforce in terms of PPE, in terms of social distancing, limiting the number of people into your establishment. Um, so in some cases there are very, very clear protocols. Now where there, where there aren't um, clear protocols, again, it behooves the employer to effectively do everything in their power to make customers and their employees safe. And I mean, the obvious reason for that is, you know, as an employer, generally speaking, you want to do everything you can to limit liability. And, you know, I think one industry where this is going to be really, really interesting to see how it plays out, Cam, is the airline industry, right? Uh, I mean, we saw July 1st here in Canada, restrictions were typically or were, were lifted for, you know, Air Canada and WestJet effectively said, we are no longer going to limit the number of people on our planes. Um, mm -hmm. So they've effectively gone back to business as usual. I, I saw um, this was happening with, with some of the airlines in the U.S. as well. Um, and funny enough, actually, I wanted to get your take on this because I saw in, in one case in particular, I think it was uh, United, United, yes. United Airlines who... Yeah. And their, their chief communications officer said, said earlier this week, you know, he effectively said that there was no practical need for social distancing on flights. And he, he chalked it up basically to, to a PR strategy and mm -hmm. not a safety strategy. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I'm, I'm very curious to get your take, but from, from a legal perspective, um, 
you know, those, that kind of comment is, is, is disconcerting and could prove to be very, very problematic because effectively what you're doing as a communications guy is you're coming out and you're telling your public and you're telling your, your potential customers that, Hey, we're, we're good to go and we're safe here and, and don't question getting on one of our planes. Well, what happens if somebody does get on their plane and then gets sick or one of, you know, or worse yet, one of their employees who have been assured that their working environment is safe if, if they get sick. Yeah. So, I mean, the PR angle of this, is, it's good you brought this up because I did have this as, as something to, to, to mention. Uh, this was botched. Yeah, there's no question about it. I think the fact that it's in the news is an indication that it was botched because, you know, usually airline policies don't, don't get a whole lot of a, attention. Um, I, I wrote at length uh, a couple of years ago about United because they had that David Dow incident where they pulled a, a man out of his seat and uh, knocked him out in the process of doing so, which was obviously a huge PR fumble for them, not just the action, but even the reaction right after that, uh, the way the CEO conducted himself was, was really not good. Uh, I've got a long article of that. I'll put in the show notes in this case though. I, again, the one thing I, I tell people all the time, and we deal with this at the company that I work for and with clients, you have to give an indication that you understand or you empathize with either your customers or your your staff or your other stakeholders, that you understand their concerns. Because if you dismiss them, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of negativity that surrounds that. And there's a lot of trust issues uh, or mistrust issues, I should say, uh, about that. So in this case, yes, United decided that, that it was not going to block the middle seat and it could have put out some sort of, sort of positive message about this, um, and talked about some of the other things they're doing, but it got attention because the, the, the communications person at United just said that it's a PR stunt. It's not a safety strategy. He was very blunt about that. And actually, his reasoning does make sense. So this is his exact quote. If you're sitting in the aisle and the middle seat is empty, the person across the aisle is within six feet from you. The person at the window is within six feet of you. So he's saying we're already in inside the bubble. We're already too close to each other. So what difference does it make? Um, I, I get that argument, but just because something is bad doesn't mean we should make it worse uh, because we've already made it bad. I, I mean, the logic breaks down a little bit there, but I, I do kind of get his point. And I think what they could have done is come out with a much more sort of positive message about this and started with the things that they are doing. And they are doing uh, a lot of things to, to sort of manage the risk um, on board. I don't have the list in front of me right now, but I, I had looked at it earlier. I'll try and find it for the show notes. But they are doing other things. And those other things got completely lost uh, because their, their, their chief communications officer handled the issue in this way. And to, to a non-PR person, this just seems like, well, what's, what's the big deal? You know, he spoke. He just called it a PR strategy. That's not bad. But it's not even in his words. It's sort of the arrogance in the tone and the uh, sort of just the, the 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 aggressiveness to some degree in the words that he chose. And these things are things that people feel. They're not necessarily explicit in the words themselves, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. Well, and also that, you know, marketing and PR, we're not always dealing with empirical facts. In fact, more often than not, yeah. we're not dealing with the empirical facts. We're dealing with, you know, what's the most positive portrayal of this particular issue for, for our broader customer base and the public at large, right? I mean, that's that's the goal. That's the message. So, you know, you sort of, you touch on a good point when, when you, you know, you sort of expanded and, and I wasn't aware of sort of that full, the full comment, but 
Um, yeah, you're right. I mean, from, from a scientific perspective, I suspect he's probably right in that we're all in the bubble anyway, when you're on one of these, you know, German festations, better known as an airplane. So, you know, what difference does it really make? But I think the better question is, well, does the public think that it makes a difference? Right. So even if there isn't a medical explanation or a scientific explanation, what's, what's, what's the optics? I mean, I did see in response to this, one of the other major U.S. carriers said, well, we're going to continue to leave the middle seat empty, you know, almost, which is sort of an interesting PR approach as well. It's, it's like you're trying to set yourself up as a, a viable alternative and an alternative approach in an industry that's effectively ubiquitous, right? It's like, how can we fill the most seats at the, you know, the cheapest price? So I thought that was interesting. Um, you know, but whenever you sort of mix science and law and PR, you get this sort of muddled, you know, often muddled approach of weighing and balancing different concerns and different issues. And depending on what the actual problem is that you're trying to address, one of those concerns may weigh heavier than others. And I think to your point, under these circumstances, I think it's probably the PR angle that's going to win the day here. Yeah. You, you make a, a really good point about the mixing of sort of science and perception and law and those sorts of things. Because, I mean, so from a science perspective, yes, we, I mean, we don't have the data on this, right? So if someone's within three feet of you, I mean, what is what is the, the risk of, of getting COVID? Whereas if someone's within one foot of you, is it a lot more? Is it a lot less? Like, we don't know. But the way it looks, like as a customer, you would think, I, like, I would rather have the middle seat empty if I'm on an airplane. I would just feel psychologically like this is just better than having somebody in that middle seat, regardless of what the science says, even if it says anything. Um, and so that goes to what you were talking about in terms of in terms of perception. Um, but all of these things have to have to be balanced out. And I think any any business that deals with the public, like a very sort of mass market public facing business, has to come across as caring about their customers first and foremost, and in, in, depending on the industry. But for airlines, that's safety, number one. It's the number one thing. So customers want their airline to be doing everything possible to get them safely from one place to another place. And so if you come across as sort of um, dismissing some potential safety protocols because you don't think they work, that may be true, but people don't know that necessarily and it doesn't make them feel very good. And it wasn't smart to say those things. Yeah. Well, and I, you know, I was, I was looking into sort of the legal angle of this, of liability from an airline's perspective. And, you know, it turns out most international flights are governed by it's called the Montreal convention and an article 17 of this convention sort of holds airlines presumptively liable for physical injury or death of a passenger caused by an accident on the aircraft or, or during the course of embarking or disembarking. Now, I mean, the threshold, of course, is is a pretty high one. And I guess for for good reason, but particularly in a covid context, it's going to be very, very difficult to prove. So really what you're looking at is whether, you know, an airline will be responsible for for passenger negligence claims. It's going to depend largely on whether the airline should have known or suspected that a passenger or crew member presented a health risk and the reasonableness of the airline's response once it became aware of that risk. Mm -hmm. So, you know, as you can imagine, that's going to be really, really difficult to demonstrate when you're talking about a virus that in terms of isolating or pinpointing the moment that you contracted it is, is going to be next to impossible. So, you know, I suspect we're going to see just an abundance 
of lawsuits thrown against the airlines. And again, I think that, you know, this, this communication statement will probably be referred to down the line somewhere where some clever individual who contracts COVID, be it, you know, on a United flight or before they get on or after they get off is going to turn around and say, well, but you know, they were loading their planes up and clearly weren't focused or concerned on passenger safety and should therefore be held held liable. And again, from from a legal perspective, I I just see that as incurring unnecessary Mm -hmm. risk. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so not only is it a bad PR statement, but it suggests that, you know, there there could be some some increased liability thrown at the airline or at least trying somebody trying to throw it at the airline somewhere down the road. That is such a good point, too, because I hadn't even thought of sort of that legal legal angle to it. And, you know, people get angry when companies are not direct or they're not straight or they don't speak, you know, from the hip or something like that. Um, this is this is why it's because you, you can get into some serious trouble, either from a PR perspective or a legal perspective. So, yeah, you do have to. I mean, number one, obviously, be as safe as you can. And then number two, empathize with your customers, understand where they're coming from, what their worries are, and make sure that you make them feel as safe as possible. If you don't do that, yeah, there's going to be some problems. Show your support to the PR and Law Podcast by making a one-time donation or setting up a subscription with us on Patreon. Every little bit helps us keep the lights on and bring the show to you each week. If you'd like to chip in, please visit PRNLawPodcast.com. That's PRNLawPodcast.com. Click support the show. Thanks for helping us out. There's a lot going on in the world this last week, especially from a from a PR perspective. So, I mean, just off the top, I wanted to mention two things. Um, one, we, we talked about Hong Kong a bit earlier, and we, uh, in a previous show, mentioned that they were trying to to find a PR agency to, to boost the city's reputation. Well, they, they found one, finally, this week. Uh, and it's one I had not even heard of, uh, called Consulum, it looks like. It's an international PR agency, and they have... Uh, among their clients is the government of Saudi Arabia uh, and also South Africa, and they are being paid 6.2 million U.S. dollars per year uh, to try and improve uh, the the Hong Kong government's image. It's going to be a very difficult task, but uh, I'd probably be willing to try for for that contract amount. Wow. Yeah, yeah. That, that sounds like a pretty good gig. Not bad. The United thing we just talked about. I mean, this week, Ewan, I, I'm going to talk about uh, it's a it's a villain. It's a company that I deeply dislike and distrust, and it's only getting worse for them. And that's Facebook. Now, to be uh, above board here, like you don't use Facebook, right? You know, like you have an account. But I mean, how often how often in a month would you say you log into Facebook? Well, gosh, zero, maybe, maybe. Well, maybe once. Maybe once every other, probably once every other month, my my accounts effectively sat dormant for so a very very long time. I'm the same. I mean, I left it. Uh, it's almost like four years ago now. I yeah, I, I'm zero. I'm at zero over the course of a year, maybe twice, three times, I think. Um, and usually it's to get some specific kind of information. I I don't like Facebook. I don't like all kinds, all facets of its business and its presentation, which I'm going to get to in a second. Anyway, they're under crisis or they're under pressure again. And it seems like there's always something going on uh, that they find themselves uh, in the middle of. Um, so, I mean, obviously they're, they're going to be a target to begin with because we're in an age where information is traveling very fast. Uh, and this is also sort of a very conducive environment to things like conspiracies, which we've seen grow a lot, especially in the United States, in the United States. 
things like fake news and propaganda and people don't know who's paying for which ads that are appearing in their Facebook feed. There's so much happening. And Facebook has really decided to take a hands-off approach, arguing that it's a platform, not a publisher. And being a platform, they're not responsible for anything that goes on its service. Whereas if it were a publisher, it would have to take some responsibility for that. I mean, the other issues are obviously Silicon Valley itself has been under fire from conservatives for perceived liberal bias uh, in social networks. And so that's, you know, kind of resulting in the opposite. Companies are much more fearful at the moment of offending people on the right, which is why people like Alex Jones had a had a platform for so long. Um, but this came to a head, Ewan, when uh, when Trump said, the U.S. President, Donald J. Trump, when he said, when the looting starts, the shooting starts. This was at the end of May, uh, amid the George Floyd protests. And Facebook let that stand. Uh, and Twitter hid the post. So you see, at that point, the two networks really did uh, diverge. Uh, and since then, uh, yeah, Facebook has really been paying the price for that. So earlier on uh, in June, uh, 400 Facebook staff walked out. It was sort of a digital walkout because people were working from home because they were so angry about the company's stance on it. The following day, Mark Zuckerberg held a, held a t- town hall with, with staff. That did not go well. Uh, the, the transcript um, is online for that. Uh, and then 5,000 Employees. Yeah, it was almost to interject. It was almost it was almost like Prince Andrew esque. It reminded me of that interview of Prince Andrew talking about his relationship with Jeffrey Epstein, uh, <laughs> where it's just everything seemed to go everything seemed to go wrong when Zuckerberg started talking. Yeah, and uh, and he's had. Uh, I mean, to begin with, to be fair, he's not a good public speaker, and it was interesting because I was listening to uh, Rico Decode, a podcast with Kara Swisher. Uh, former Wall Street Journal, and it just wrapped up. And she actually interviewed uh, Mark Zuckerberg, and she said he's not, he, he, she called him an intellectual lightweight, I believe. Um, but I want to actually get to this. This Ouch. is, yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna set people up here because it is actually a three-minute clip. Now, this is an interview with Mark Zuckerberg uh, from a couple of years ago about whether Facebook should remove content from its site or whether it should keep it on the site. Obviously, Facebook has always leaned towards leaving it alone there. But I think this interview clip, and listen to the whole thing, it really sort of gives you an insight into the way that Mark Zuckerberg thinks. So this is Mark Zuckerberg with Kara Swisher on her podcast, Recode Decode. Why don't you want to just say, get off our platform? Well, look, as abhorrent as some of this content can be, I do think that it gets down to this principle of giving people a voice. Even if it's a hoax. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it, at some level, it's hard to always have a clear line between, uh, no, I'm not defending any specific content here. Mm-hmm. And, and I think a lot of the content that's that's at play is, is, is terrible. And I think mm-hmm. when you get into discussions around free speech, you're often, mm-hmm. um, you know, talking at the margins of content that is terrible and, and what should, um, in, in, but defending people's right to say things, even if they, they can be bad. But, sorry, I lost my train of thought here. Where, where, where there's a difference between offensive and hoaxes. And oh, yeah. Infowars. Yes. I want you to make a case for taking Infowars off if you were on the other side of it. I mean, I think if you were trying to argue on the side of of basically that the core principle of keeping the community safe, mm-hmm. I think you would try to argue that the content is somehow attacking people or is pro- creating an unsafe environment. Now, let me give it's you an, let me give you an example right. of where 
um, we would take it down. Mm-hmm. So in Myanmar or Sri Lanka, where there's a history of sectarian violence, right. you know, similar to the, the tradition in the U.S. where you can't go into a movie theater and yell fire because mm-hmm. that creates an imminent harm. Um, you know, there are definite examples of people sharing images that are taken out of context that are false that are specifically used to induce people to violence in those right. areas where there is un- ongoing... And violence ongoing. has resulted. Yes. So... You know, we are moving towards the, the policy of misinformation that is um, aimed at or going to induce violence. We are going to take down because that's basically the, the, the principles that we have on what we remove from the service are if it's going to result in real harm, real physical harm, or if you're attacking individuals, then that content shouldn't be on the platform. Mm-hmm. Right. And there's a lot of categories of that that we can get into. But then there's broad debate. And okay, Sandy Hook didn't happen is not a debate. It is false. You can't just take that down. I, I agree that it is false. Okay. Um, and, and I also think that going to someone who is a victim mm-hmm. um, of Sandy Hook and uh, telling them, hey, no, you're a liar, mm-hmm. um, that is harassment and we actually will take that down. Mm-hmm. Um, but overall, you know, I mean, let's, let's take this, this a little closer to home, right? Okay. So I'm Jewish mm-hmm. um, and there's a set of people who uh, deny that the Holocaust happened, yes, right? I find that deeply offensive. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, uh, I, I don't believe that our platform should take that down because I think that there are things that different people get wrong, um, either... I don't think that they're intentionally getting it wrong, but I think but that in they... In case of a Holocaust um, deniers, they might be, but go um, ahead. It's, it's hard to yeah. impugn intent mm-hmm. um, and to understand the intent. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just think for as important as some of those examples are, I think the reality is also that um, I get things wrong when I speak publicly. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure you do. I'm sure a lot of leaders and, and public figures who we respect do too. And... I just don't think that it is the right thing to say we are going to take someone off the platform if they get things wrong, um, even multiple times. There's a lot to unpack in his answer there, Ewan. But what 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 are some I'll takeaways that, that or what did you notice out of that? Well, one thing actually, not even about Zuckerberg, is just to sort of commend Kara Swisher. I, I I'm not familiar with the podcast, but I'm I'm definitely intrigued, and we'll check it out now. She was fantastic in that clip of keeping him off talking points. You could tell there was there was a moment where he he sort of diverted the topic and then tried to move to uh, sectarian violence in Myanmar and Sri Lanka. Clearly, that was a prepared talking point, but her interjections were fantastic. You know, as a lawyer, these are things as a litigator. These are things you you sort of look at. Right. I mean, when you're examining someone, you want to you want to command and control the discussion. You never, ever, ever want to let control of the questioning um, be be controlled by your witness. You have to control your witness. And she really, really controlled Zuckerberg through that through that discussion, which I thought was very, very well done. That was sort of my first comment. Um, my second comment about Zuckerberg in particular is, here's the problem. He's effectively trying to make a free speech civil libertarian argument that, hey, look, you know, some people say bad things, but, you know, we have to protect the right to free speech even when they say those bad things. The problem with that is that he's running a platform where he has a vested interest in continuing to allow those individuals to post content. So whether or not 
he actually is a civil libertarian. And, uh, you know, I mean, that that that's questionable at best. His 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 argument in that regard lacks a certain sense of legitimacy and honesty and belief from, you know, sort of a layman public perspective because he has a vested interest in in putting that message out. Yeah, there's uh, the, that's a good takeaway, Ewan. Uh, um, there, I mean, like I said, there's a lot in here. So first off, I just want to mention Kara Swisher. So I, I, I don't know how familiar with her you are. Uh, she's been around for, for quite a while, but yeah, she is a very tough interview. And actually, she, she had a previous interview with Mark Zuckerberg uh, where he was sweating profusely on stage when she was asking him questions. So there's a bit of a background between, between these two. And inter- interestingly enough, uh, her podcast just ended as she's moving over to the New York Times. Uh, so she's been writing for them for, for a while. And she's going to have a podcast over there as well, it sounds like. So yeah, definitely something we'll have to keep an eye on. Um, so uh, with Mark Zuckerberg, from a PR perspective, I thought it was fascinating that he himself brought up the Holocaust example, because obviously that is very treacherous terrain. And he was not asked to make a comparison or to come up with an example. And he picked one of the most difficult examples um, is sort of wrought with sensitivities uh, to begin with. And overall, his arguments just don't sound very convincing because he said if people are harassed or if there is uh, you know, speech that drives people to violence, um, that he'll take it down. But you could make a very strong argument that, that language doesn't have to be written directly to lead to violence. I mean, we've seen this with uh, QAnon in, in Washington and many, many other things uh, where, where there's been some real fallout, real harm done for speech that is not necessarily um, you know, that overt. He's playing into, um, or he's demonstrating, I should say, Facebook's bigger problem. And you can see right from the beginning, I mean, Facebook has huge uh, trust issues uh, with people, or people have trust issues with with Facebook. And you can see it starts at the top. It starts right with Mark Zuckerberg. So, I, you know, just before we, we went to the break, I mentioned that 5,000 Facebook employees had denounced the decision to keep uh, Trump's uh, messages on Facebook and not pull them down. But it's finally reaching a bit of a breaking point because now... Now, and this is just last week this picked up steam, there is an advertiser boycott of Facebook until it cleans this up. And so Unilever was one of the most recent ones, Patagonia, North Face, Starbucks, the Hershey Company, uh, Coca-Cola's pulled ads off all social media for for 30 days. Uh, Because I think people are sort of getting to the point where this is now becoming too much. And uh, Zuckerberg was quoted at a staff meeting from just the other day saying he's not concerned the advertisers will be back quickly. Which again, this is sort of the arrogance that we discussed from the United Communications chief. Um, and I think that coming out is also, it's also extremely damaging. So, I mean, just just to summarize here, Ewan, like Facebook is not well-liked. It does not have strong uh, positive brand feelings associated with it. Usage is down substantially among young people. I mean, it's, it's now, it's now um, I think it's third or fourth place in terms of social networks uh, for teenagers. And there's a decline in older people using it as well. The, the, only, the only demographic that's seeing an uptick is people 55 plus. So that's sort of telling you where the platform uh, is going. And it's also associated now with hate speech, racism, conspiracies. I mean, Facebook has played fast and loose with personal data, such as, you know, the Cambridge Analytical Analytica scandal. Um, and, you know, there's been other tragedies like suicides and other mental health issues uh, on that platform. So it, 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 is a, it is a very damaged brand in my eyes. And actually with Zuckerberg at the helm, 
with the team that he has there and with the history it has, I actually don't think this is going to be very easy to turn around because it seems like every week there's another story that's damaging about Facebook. I've only listed a few here. There's others where they were snooping on your phone or they're setting up you know, profiles for people that never signed up for Facebook. This goes on and on and on. And I, I think the rot is really at the core uh, of Facebook. What, you know, what would your counsel be to him, Cam? I mean, you know, and if, if you were to sit him down before that interview with Kara Swisher, I mean, how would you have prepped him? What, you know, what would your messaging be or your counsel be in terms of how to address that particular issue. Well, that's too late at that point, actually. Uh, I mean, this, this, these are actually more business issues almost because they have to make business decisions here on these things. It's, I think PR, PR, the PR person should have some say. Um, I mean, I was thinking about this, like what would, what would one advise to the company in general? And to me, it does need an overhaul. And, and that doesn't mean firing everybody, but it, it's, it's a rethink and a rebrand um, that, that goes pretty deep. So, I mean, they, they need to figure out, you know, what are, what are the values of Facebook? What are they standing up for? You know, what, what is, what matters to them? So for a long time, Mark Zuckerberg said it was to connect, you know, all the people in the world. Well, you know, almost 3 billion, I think are connected now through Facebook. So, so then what? Like, what's the purpose of this tool? And so I think they need to come up with something like that, sort of like a sort of an, an integrity, a statement of integrity or, or values uh, that the company will, will, will carry out. And then you need new spokespeople in key positions that can talk about these things. So there has to be a visible and measurable change in terms of the company's values, you know, what it stands for who's going to speak on behalf of the company and, and what is their, what is their North star? Like what is the thing that they're going to follow because it's who they are and it's the right thing to do. They need to identify that thing and then follow it. And I think only then people will start to see that, okay, this is different. The company has, has heard us and it's, it's making changes and it's different, but I don't think Mark Zuckerberg can say anything in an interview at this point. That's going to change very many minds. He came out, uh, a couple months ago and said that Facebook was now going to focus on encrypted conversations. And it was almost like nobody took them seriously because it's, it's so outside of Facebook's business model to do that. Um, so, so this, this, this problem, it is a PR problem, but it's such a, a it's such a massive one that it's not one that a PR person alone is going to be able to turn around. Well, and it almost sounds like he is, he, I mean, he's such an integral part of their massive PR problem <laughs> that really, you know, if, if there's a head that needs to be cut off, it's probably his, or at the very least he shouldn't be permitted to engage in any sort of, um, you know, public interviews in that, in that sort of capacity. Uh, he's just clearly not the best guy to, to engage in that sort of commentary on all of these things too. When I hear him speak and I, I heard him speak to the, to the, to the Senate as well, uh, several months ago, I, I feel like he doesn't get it. I, I feel like he doesn't really understand why people are so upset and what the big deal is because he sort of trots out these lines that he thinks are going to be sufficient uh, to answer people's questions. And they're just not. And I think people and advertisers have been so patient with, with Zuckerberg and with Facebook, hoping that they're going to eventually do the right thing. And it's just not happening. And I think that's why this, this advertiser boycott is, is, is really sticking so far this time. Um, I think people realize that, um, 
you know, the, 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 the election of Donald Trump obviously was a big wake up call, but just how the, the platform can be used for propaganda and for messaging and for, for, for really dubious organizations or groups to spread their word and the damage that can be caused through, through these tools arguably is much worse than, than the good that's coming at Facebook these days. Yeah. But I mean, at the same time, where, where are those advertisers going to go? I mean, is this really going to, going to hold up? That's, I'm, that's sort of my question, right? I'm I mean, glad what, you what are Facebook alternatives? I mean, I understand you got TikTok, you got Twitter, you've got, you know, Instagram. Well, I guess Facebook owns Instagram, right? I mean, what, what are the platforms that are going to, that, that could use this seize to seize this as an opportunity in sort of leveraging and expanding their market share? There's none on that scale. There's, there's quite simply none. In fact, if you look at the ad market, at least in the English language, it's, it's, it's sewn up by two companies. It's Google and Facebook. So they're the two companies because advertising is all based on data now and uh, massive stores of data that allows sort of micro-targeting of people. And with Google, it, gets, it can leverage people's Gmail and their Google searches to find out exactly who they are. So if you have a Gmail account, you know, Google knows where you're flying on holiday and, you know, what you've ordered from Amazon and, I mean, on and on. And they can sell that to advertisers. No other company can compete with that. And then Facebook on on the other side. I mean, people... People offer up tremendous amounts of their own personal information onto the platform. And you're right. I mean, advertisers use Facebook because it, it, it is effective. And I mean, I've used the Facebook advertising even when we were running the Nanfang. Uh, we used it. And it was great because you yeah. can target so specifically. Um, and and there, there, there's not another platform that can, that can do that at that scale. I mean, you mentioned TikTok. Yes, it's coming along, but it's nowhere near, nowhere near uh, either of those companies yet. And same with Twitter. I mean, Twitter's quite, quite small as well. They're, they're, they're just not uh, comparable in, in scope. So, I, yeah, I mean, there is a, there is a risk these, these advertisers are going to go back. But um, it'll be interesting because if Facebook doesn't make any changes, how can the advertisers, without any sort of change, just decide to go back? And what does that say, um, you know, for people that supported them in this ban? to see it end without any, any gains being made. Well, and I guess that, that question really depends upon ongoing pressure imposed upon these companies who were advertising with, with Facebook. I mean, once that pressure disappears, then, you know, the advertisers can, can quietly go back to posting on Facebook really with, with, without, you know, any concern of, uh, of repercussion. Right. And that's the problem. Yeah, that is, uh, that is an issue. Anyway, this is something I'm going to keep an eye on. I, I, like I mentioned, I personally sort of, my, my account is still on Facebook. Um, but even for the, the PR and law podcast page that we have on there, everyone, uh, even though I'm bashing Facebook, if you're on the platform, please go, please go and like the page. Um, I, like I don't post that by logging into to Facebook. I'm using other tools that allow me to to, to access that page and see what's going on. Um, I, I just don't log in at all. And the odd time I've clicked on something that's taken me to Facebook, actually, I think the design is horrible. Like, I think it's messy. I mean, there's there's literally nothing about it that I like. But I guess I mean the main part for me is I do I have lost touch with a lot more people since I stopped using Facebook. Not that the not that the connections were tight on Facebook, but it was enough that you could see when somebody got married or see when somebody, you know, went on a trip or had a, had a child or something enough to say a congratulations every couple of years for a, a life milestone. But, but since I've been gone from there, yeah, I'm, I just feel completely out of the loop. I'm okay with that. mind you. Um, but I could see how others might have a problem. Yeah, I, I hear you. And I sort of feel exactly the same way. <laughs> but I tell you, and uh, to be careful with TikTok, I, I went on it again today. 
and I, I get sucked right in. Like it, it's, it's remarkable how good their algorithm is. Um, actually that brings me to another point. We haven't talked about this week. This is affecting the, the place where I work in fact, uh, at Tencent, but, uh, India has banned 59 apps, 59 Chinese apps from the country entirely. And that includes TikTok, And, uh, and that's actually TikTok's largest market. Um, so it is a very big deal. And it's also the first time a country has decided to block apps from another country rather than a specific company or, or a specific kind of app. Um, and so, you know, there's some concern over, over whether this will be a, a precedent for, for other countries to take action if they have, if they have issues. Mm, well, that'll be something else to keep an eye on going forward. For sure. Um, what have you got, Ewan, uh, for some uh, recommendations? Do you have any today? Well, yeah. I mean, I finally got around to watching the, the um, Jeffrey Epstein documentary on netflix i don't know if you've seen it yet i've seen the first um, one just i did yeah i've seen the first one but i've listened okay. to the podcast which covered all the same stuff is really good well, i mean good is in okay yeah. well produced but not not good material right well i mean i uh i i knew very very little about jeffrey epstein going into it so i found it really compelling particularly the first couple episodes where you know much of it is about who is this guy who is this guy who is mm. this guy um but i i thought that it would be you know i wanted to sort of bring it up this week because of course earlier this week um Gislan maxwell who of course was epstein's partner and at least as it's depicted in the documentary played a key, a key role in sort of helping him to lure women, these underage women and traffic them. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I, I I looked at her, there was an 18 page indictment that was, that was released earlier this week. You can, you can find it online. Actually, we can post it in the short, in the show notes. Um, And yeah, I mean, she's facing now facing four charges. So conspiracy, I mean, it's crazy conspiracy to entice minors to travel, to engage in illegal sex acts enticement of a minor to travel to engage in illegal sex acts, conspiracy to transport minors, transportation of a minor with intent to engage in criminal sexual activity. I mean, just really, really abhorrent behavior. Um, And of course, everybody is interested to see whether she'll cut some sort of deal. And of course, there's all sorts of conspiracy theories around Maxwell and Epstein in terms of relationships with, with Trump, relationships with the Clintons. Um, yeah. Anyway, uh, check out the documentary. If you haven't seen it, for those who haven't seen it, it's worth your time. I think it's only about four parts. Yeah. Just a really, really crazy story of unchecked power. Uh, what happens when you have individuals who effectively see themselves as above the law? Yeah. And he was, he really was above the law too, for, for a long time. I, 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 um, I mean, the podcast was, a, I think it was a 13 episode podcast that went into quite a bit of detail. Like I, I was, I wasn't that familiar with Jeffrey Epstein before, but when he was arrested in New Jersey, um, coming off that airplane and the news coverage started, I did read a lot at that time. So I was familiar once all of this started happening, I was much more familiar. And yeah, I think um, it's remarkable. I mean, it's disgusting, but it's remarkable uh, of what he got away with, with so many victims over such a long time uh, and people knowing, I mean, it's sort of, it's different, but it's sort of like Harvey Weinstein in a way that people seem to know that this was this guy's proclivities and um, just, kind of let it go. Uh, it's, it's, it's really, really remarkable. It's a remarkable story. So yeah, I've watched the first one. I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to, to the, to the, to the next three. 
I, I, I wanted to mention one thing, you and I actually meant to bring this up uh, earlier on the show uh, when we were sort of talking about the news, because um, I don't know if you remember, but, you know, in March, I'm, I know you'll remember this, the stock market crashed, basically, once once we found out that um, COVID-19 was going to be a big deal. And, and, and at one time, the market was down 30%. Uh, which is which is an awful lot, and I, I actually talked about one stock that I really like called Shopify. I think everyone's well, a lot of people will be familiar with Shop, Shopify if you listen to this show. Canada's uh, number one company uh, at this point, and because um, it had gone down to three hundred and twenty-two dollars per share, and uh, on episode one, episode one of our podcast, Ewan, this is what I said. It is going to have a lot more volatility. I actually did get in last week because there were, I think I mentioned to you, there were some incredible deals on, you know, companies like Shopify. I think it was down to 320 something. And I said, you Mm -hmm. know, it's going to go to 420 something. Like it's it's a sure bet. And it had done that by Tuesday. On Friday, or rather Thursday, Friday was a holiday, the, the, the stock closed at $1,059 up from 322 in March. So if anyone would have Canada, yes, if anyone would have taken my advice, I doubt there were many, uh, you would be, you would be wealthy, uh, today. So I wanted to pass that along. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll, I'll keep that in mind the next time you give, uh, you you give a tip on the show. Uh, the last one I wanted to mention, uh, I, I thought this was remarkable. Um, uh, the BBC did a story on Vietnam. Now uh, we had, talked uh, about this as well on a show uh, several shows ago about their their good record with COVID-19. Well, uh, this story is called Patient 91, How Vietnam Saved a British Pilot and Kept a Clean COVID-19 Sheet. And it's actually a remarkable story of this guy who got a job with a Vietnam airline, had gone to Ho Chi Minh City, he was going to start, and he went out to play pool, and he ended up getting COVID from the bar that he was at. And uh, actually, that bar ended up being kind of a kind of a hotspot, um, a cluster uh, of cases. And so there's a lot of negativity toward him, especially as a foreigner uh, in Vietnam. But what unfolded over the weeks following that is truly remarkable. Um, he was he was in the ICU for weeks. Um, they basically because he became their most serious case. At one point, he was down to to just a 10 percent chance of, of surviving. And after many weeks, I think he was, I think he was unconscious for, for six weeks. Um, and uh, anyway, they managed to save him. And um, they talk in there about sort of the things that Vietnam had done to save his life. And they put so much effort into it because he was their only patient left. <laughs> so they had all of the country's top doctors focused on, by teleconference on this one patient and how they kept him alive. And they kept their, uh, their death total at zero. They have not had a single death from COVID-19. It's truly a remarkable story. It's a good news story, too. We don't share too many of those. Uh, so I'll put that in the show notes if, uh, if anyone wants to have a look. Great. Yeah, I mean, that truly is remarkable. Zero. <laughs> Zero. I mean, wow. And again, uh, you know, not, not an ins- it's not like Vietnam has some insignificant marginal population. Um, it's a yeah. fairly dense country. Yeah. And yet zero. Just just incredible. And this is why I, I mean, even when I hear these things, it's still the US. I think well, if Vietnam can do this. I mean, oh, it's such a mess. Depressing. One other thing I wanted to share. Um, I read a, a, a great article this week and we can share it in the show notes. It was a BBC article on Roald Dahl, the acclaimed mm. Yeah. Children's author. 
And, well, I might have uh, seen this. You know, I, I don't, you may have seen this. Yeah, it was it was really interesting. It was, um, you know, sort of the the title is is the dark side of Roald Dahl, and and it sort of talks about and, and asks the question: Why are his stories so beloved by children, generation after generation? Children just love these love these stories. Um, and you know, if there happens to be anybody out there who isn't familiar with Roald Dahl, we're talking about the author who wrote such titles as uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Matilda, The Witches, James and the Giant Peach, the BFG. I mean, the list really mm-hmm. just goes on. I've read and on. many of those. Um, I know. Yeah. I mean, I've the uh, fantastic Mr. Fox. I mean, I've read already. I've read most of these stories to my daughter, uh, who's, who's kind of obsessed with them. I remember reading them as a child as well. And what, what, what's interesting. And one of the subjects, the article talks, talks about and touches upon is what is it about these dark stories that children seem to love? And, you know, the, the, basically the, 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 the idea being that, that is what they love. They love sort of the darkness of the stories that they're sort of dangerous and foreboding um, that that's part of what triggers and helps children develop their imagination and, and creates a reference point for them that wants them to go back to those stories over and over and over again, which I thought was really, really interesting that it's uh, it almost seems like a bit of a subversive tool to sort mm. of get children hooked on on the content from from a young age anyway very very interesting article it also talks about Roald Dahl biographically as well and some of you know the darker elements of his past I mean he was you know he's a rather outspoken anti-semite for one example um I didn't know that article that we Mm. can we can link to yeah Yeah, for sure I didn't either I didn't either yeah very very interesting yeah well we uh we touched on all kinds of different subjects today so um we're gonna we're gonna wrap this up um thank you so much uh for listening if you enjoyed the show please tell a friend really it's the only way we have to get word out uh about the show is through you recommending it to to people in your circle and so we appreciate that um you can also follow us on social media to get uh the latest announcements of when when shows drop and other other links and related news to the podcast uh we're on twitter linkedin facebook and instagram and the account name is pr law pod all one word p-r-l-a-w-p-o-d and you can also like and subscribe to us on youtube and you can support us on patreon by visiting our website at prlawpodcast.com prlawpodcast.com so that's it everyone we'll see you next week this is cam for you and christy see you later this has been the PR and Law Podcast with Cam McMurchie and Ewing Christie. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend or leave a review. You can also join us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by following our account at PR Law Podcast. That's all one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Thanks for your support. 